electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Happy Friday and welcome to the CNBC special, The Tech Trade, wrapping up the busiest week of earnings from the biggest names in tech. I'm Deirdre Boza in San Francisco. Jim Cramer has the night off. With me here at One Market, Satori Funds, Dan Niles, ready to break down the tape. The rooster to my maverick. Dan, you said it was okay to say that as long as I didn't call you goose, right? Welcome. Nice to be here. <laughs> I'm glad we got you out to One Market. First, a look at tech's historic bull market rally. Are there cracks in the armor, though? We will discuss. And speaking of bulls, we'll talk to ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, in just a moment, why she's loading up on growth stocks despite the volatility this hour. Plus, after weakness from big names like Qualcomm and Intel, we are checking in on chips with the CEO of Global Foundries. And don't think the results stop here. More on the names that you should be betting on next week or betting against ahead of numbers from Airbnb, Uber, and more. Quick check on how we finished up the day, week, and month on Wall Street. The major averages rallying in today's session to close out a second straight positive week. The Dow and S&P 500 notching their largest monthly gains since November of 2020. And the Nasdaq, well, it's back for now at least. Major outperformer in the month of July, still lagging on the year. Uh, Dan Niles, I know what you're going to say. This is another bear market rally. You have been negative on tech all year. That doesn't mean that there's not opportunities, though. And this quarter told us, though, this, this isn't really the nuclear winter that some had feared a week ago. Well, I mean, don't confuse the stock price action with the fundamentals, because if you go through all the companies, they pretty much, for the most part, all missed. The numbers came down. Some of the stocks rallied, but that had more to do with where you were. Yeah. Snapchat blows up. Google's next. It goes up. And Facebook goes with it. But then Facebook comes the next day. It goes down, right? So there, it's more because of that. It felt like there was at least one kind of rare reacceleration story this quarter, and that was Amazon. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? I mean, they kind of took their medicine. They took billions of dollars in costs. They, it kind of feels like they're ready for the second half, at least positioned against some of the others in the space. Well, yeah, we actually put out a tweet on this about two weeks ago, I want to say, saying, look, you know, last year, Prime Day, their revenues were up about 8%. They put out the numbers. It looked like it was up about 18%. So we bought a ton of it. We, it was 15% of our, our portfolio at one point. Where it ran up, you know, it was up like 10% at least. We got rid of it because we're like, we've got a massive gain. Let's take it. 
But that's the way we handle risk. We don't want to be big into earnings. We typically size down, especially if it's had a big run in the direction, and then we resize it again afterwards. Right, and you were actually on CNBC at the start of the week Monday. It feels about a million years ago right <laughs> it now. It does, totally. Um, <laughs> but you were, had a lot of short positions going mm-hmm. into this week. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it wasn't as bad as many feared. And you, even though the fundamentals, you could argue, weren't that great, you did see big gains from Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple. Yep. Yeah, and you did. I mean, so for us, it was, again, timing-related. When Snapchat came out, stock was down 39%, took the entire space down. We went ahead, and we have a tweet on this, we covered a bunch of our shorts in the ad tech space. So for us, Google was literally a 15% short in the portfolio. The day that they reported, it was two. Right. So for us, Google made a lot of money for us this month. And so it's trying to size your positions appropriately. And the day of earnings, it gets tricky because maybe you own Snapchat or maybe you own Google, but, you know, do you own Roku or do you own one of the other names? So some of this is just there's such high volatility. Mm -hmm. If you don't make money in particular, and I know we'll get into Uber and Lyft later, yeah. and you miss, you could have a massive problem in this take. I know, and a lot of what you do is risk management. So you are constantly trading in and out of positions, shorts and longs, or betting against the market. Yeah. Um, we were chatting a little earlier before the show, and what's interesting is you actually did see some opportunity in this week. You picked up shares of Meta and Intel. If I were to yeah. name two of the worst reports this week, it yeah. would be those two. What do you say? Absolutely. But here's the thing that people forget. Companies have problems at different times, and sometimes it's a precursor to what's going to happen. If you think of Amazon, they've been missing four quarters in a row of revenues up until this one. That's why we got massively long. I look at Intel, and I expected numbers to come down. We got out of it before the print. We owned it for the Chips Act. We actually own Global Foundries right now, which I know you'll talk to yeah. that CEO later. But you know, with Intel, we got out. It dropped 9%. Global Foundries was up 9 We took a little bit out of our Global Foundries position, bought a little bit of Intel, because the numbers now actually look like they can probably get to them, and the multiple's quite a bit lower. Well, okay, let me push back a little bit on this Intel call. We had Pat Gelsinger on Tech Check this morning, and you know, we, he was pretty candid, actually. He said, you know, the blame sort of rests on me. This was not a good quarter. We have to do better. But he's been so bullish since he took the position 18 months ago. And what I hear from analysts, too, is that he's lost some credibility. How can you believe that this is a bottom now just because he's telling you so? He's been bullish all the way down. Well, you got to remember, I've been bearish on Intel all the way down, right? right? You've never had me on Tech Check where I've said anything bullish about those forecasts. And, you know, we've had responses on Twitter where, like, we don't think they can make the numbers. And if you remember, our two big calls in earnings were you're going to have problems in the, P- the pandemic beneficiaries, PCs and smartphones. Qualcomm missed. We also were on Monday saying we think Apple's probably OK. We actually owned it was our last position. But we have another problem in the ad tech space. And so a lot of these things are going to continue. But Intel missed the numbers by 15 percent on the revenue. Yeah. They took down the next quarter by 17. So. <laughs> You kind of go at a certain point, it's okay, now this is looking reasonable relative to expectations of guys that have yet to report that are coming that could be absolute train wrecks. And that's what you're saying, it's all relative. You're taking a little from somewhere to put it somewhere else. Um, Dan, we have lots to go through this uh, show. I'm excited that you are with us. We're going to get right back to you. Sit tight. We are just getting started on the CNBC special. Up next, a tech bull market famous or infamous to some across Wall Street. 
Kathy Wood continued to buy the dip. She's been on a tear recently, Kathy Wood. Speaking of Kathy Wood, who did add to some shares on the dip. I'm calling the Kathy Wood stocks because a lot of them make up the ARK funds. Kathy Wood dumping Coinbase. Kathy Wood's having a good day. Well, we got her. ARK Invest, Kathy Wood is next, kicking off a huge hour ahead here at One Market. We will be right back. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Well, she's been a longtime bull on growth names loading up on shares of beaten down pandemic darlings while the rest of Wall Street contemplates their prospects. And the earnings season so far has been punishing to some of her biggest holdings, like Roku today, down 23 percent. Joining us now, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood. Kathy, thank you so much for spending your time with us on a Friday evening. Now, is there anything so far in the earnings season or the economic data, anything else that would make you waver in your conviction of the growth trade? Well, uh, what we do um, see in these earnings results is that we are in a recession. And uh, we've been calling for a recession for quite some time, uh, a lot of it based on excess inventory. So we think this is an inventory-led recession. And I think that's coming through loud and clear. We're seeing advertisers cut back dramatically. It seems like 
when Walmart and Target announced uh, in May that they were loaded up with inventories and this was far uh, above what they had expected and that they were going to have to do something about it, you know, a lot of advertisers uh, started cutting back, cutting a budget, saying, okay, this is, this is a possible recession uh, indicator. And as you know, we've just gotten two quarters, consecutive quarters, of negative real GDP growth, but a lot of people still are fighting the notion that we're in a recession. Yeah, certain people are finding that notion. A lot of economists like yourself, there is a technical recession. But then there's also what a lot of folks, including Fed Chair Jay Powell, says isn't necessarily recession. They define it as a broad-based slowdown across a number of industries. Are you seeing that? Yeah, I, I think this is a recession. And I think what the Fed is really focused on is employment as a gauge. Uh, employment is a lagging indicator. The CPI, the PPI, all of those are lagging indicators. If you look at initial unemployment insurance claims, they're up 50% from the low. So I do believe we're going to see some uh, significant disappointment in the employment numbers uh, moving ahead. And I also think based on what we're seeing from gold, gold the gold price actually peaked in August of 2020, many people don't know that, and it's down near the low end of a range, a two-year range. That's an important inflation gauge. Uh, and then copper price. The copper price broke down. It broke a, a one-year trading range in the four to five dollars per pound range, and it uh, has come down hard. So mm -hmm. I think all of these are signals that uh, that inflation is going to come down, it's going to come down significantly, and that we're probably going to see some deflation. And we've been calling for that for quite some time as well. Right. I know you have. And what? how do you position your portfolio in a recession? What has changed about the way that you're looking at growth stocks? Well, it, typically growth stocks will... Uh, outperform as we move towards the end of a bear market and an end of a recession because they're the new leadership. Uh, as inflation and interest rates were going up, we were facing incredible headwinds uh, that started in February of 21. And um, it looks like, at least so far, uh, that we bottomed on an intraday basis based on our flagship strategy um, uh, on May 12th. And uh, we actually bottomed before the NASDAQ and the S&P did. The S&P broke down to new lows after that. Uh, so that was uh, an early signal that we might be turning the corner here. But I think to really turn the corner, uh, the Fed does need to change its spots. Mm. It's getting all kinds of signals that it should, like an inverted yield curve. Uh, and yet, uh, I think it's paying attention to lagging indicators of inflation, determined not to be blamed for letting the genie out of the bottle and causing another 70s-like inf uh, inflation period. So, Kathy, to get let me get this straight. You think that we've hit a bottom. Deflation is now the concern. And you think that the Fed is going to shift its policy, relax its policy going forward over the next year or so? I do think within the next year that the Fed will relax its policy because I think it will prove to be very successful, maybe too successful. Uh, uh, this may the, the recession may be sustained if it continues to raise rates. And uh, and the yield well, curve continues what, to invert. 
Yeah, what do you make of bond yields then? What is that telling you about a recession or not? Yeah, isn't it interesting? Uh, the the 10-year Treasury bond yield yeah. uh, broke 2.7 today. Now, a lot of technicians were looking at 2.7. That's the lower end of the range. It broke. It's at 265. What is the 10-year Treasury bond yield telling us? 265 uh, for 10 years. That's kind of where people think nominal GDP growth will be. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's 2.65%, that doesn't leave much room for inflation or growth. Uh, so I think the bond market is, is basically saying, okay, Fed, <laughs> what you've done has worked. And, uh, and uh, the, the surprises at some mm -hmm. point, you know, again, the CPI lagging indicator, the surprises are going to be on the low side of expectations. You have copper prices down 20% month over month, and year over year, uh, that is going to get into these price indicators at some point. So, Kathy, I know you talk a lot about this new leadership. You're obviously making a big bet on disruptive technologies. Um, some people, though, think that we're in another 2000s dot-com bubble moment, that this is only a bear market rally. And a lot of folks like to use, a lot of the bulls, including yourself, like to use the example of Amazon, right? This is a company that went down hugely during the crisis, the dot-com crisis, and went back up. Um, but for every Amazon, there are many more Cisco's a stock that is still hugely important but never regained that peak, even though its revenues may have doubled, for example. Akamai is another example, yes. even more extreme. So how, like, how are you positioning your portfolio in terms of that? Because the way you talk makes it seem like you think that there's going to be many Amazons, and there is only one. Oh, uh, well, we think that there are going to be many Amazons. Uh, we've done a study, first two, two points here. Uh, we've done a study on... Uh, the tech and telecom bubble and bust, and where if we were uh, today at the same point in the downturn, we would be looking at negative uh, revenue growth uh, for our companies. Instead, we on, on balance, on average, we're looking for north, and it's not even our estimates that we're using here, uh, the consensus estimates uh, associated with the companies in our portfolios uh, suggest that revenue growth will um, be 25% or more. Now, our, our expectations are higher. That's a lot different than in the tech and telecom bust when one company after another was going bankrupt. Uh, and that's because companies, uh, uh, too much capital chased too few opportunities too soon. The technologies weren't ready and the costs were way too high. And so you saw a lot of bankruptcies. You're not seeing that now. They, they were very, either they were zombie companies, they, 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 they had stopped well, growing and they were deteriorating, or they were going bankrupt. And you're not seeing that now. And the other thing in the study, it's on our site uh, that, that we showed, is that our gross margins now are going up on balance. In, and, they, and they're from higher levels than we ever reached during the tech and telecom bubble. Right. Uh, and they're going up now, whereas they were going down by this time in the well, bubble. So we do not think this is a, the, the, a reincarnation of the tech and telecom bust. We do think there are five major platforms evolving now. The technologies are here now. AI right. is here now. It was not here before. And the costs are low enough 
to sequence one human genome, it takes $500, not $2.3 billion. Mm -hmm. So well, the technologies are here and, and we believe we're moving into a period of exponential growth, which will ultimately shine through the cyclical forces uh, that are hurting some of these companies right now. Kathy, is there an argument to be made, though, that we're still early? We haven't yet seen the bankruptcies, but you look at this past week and the cloud companies' growth is decelerating. That is going to have a knock-on effect for the tech ecosystem. Some of the smaller companies that are in your portfolio. Take a look at Roku today, one of your top holdings, down 25 percent. Explain why you remain so bullish on this name and what is its disruptive technology? Sure. Uh, uh, and um, you, you see you can see our trades trades every day. So you'll see today that um, we added to our position. Um, so uh, this is a play uh, on the move from linear uh, TV to digital TV streaming technology. Uh, if you look at the 18 to 49 uh, year old group cohort, you'll find that we just passed 50% viewership uh, is, is streaming or digital TV. Uh, however, only 25% of total advertising is in streaming TV. And what's happening, the reason Roku got hit so hard is although it had a very good upfront season, so it's getting in there with the, the linear TV guys, getting some of those ad budgets in the upfront TV season, uh, about a billion dollars, right. uh, which is about 6% of the upfront. Uh, it's it's uh, advertising right now is more in the scatter market. And many people consider it, many companies consider it experimental, see how mm. well it does. Uh, but we think that the advertising pie is going to leave linear. And, and that's a $70 billion yes. pie. So, Kathy, you know, I think that... And so connected. I don't think anyone would argue that the disruption right now is from linear to digital. But what makes Roku the winner in this space when there's so much more competition, especially from the likes of Netflix and Disney Plus and names that have more potentially more experience, more users. They can use technology from Microsoft. Yes. No, that's the point, though. They're on Roku's platform and Roku gets a, cat, a cut of their advertising dollars. So, again, they are moving more quickly. And we think sports. The reason linear TV has had a hold on the market with sports. Now sports are moving into streaming and the connected TV market. You see the NFL deals with Amazon yeah. and uh, other sports deals with Apple. Roku's going to get a cut of that. This is the if they uh, can uh, maintain the most important platform, their hardware advantage, and they've run into supply chain issues. But I want to hit another name with you, um, Coinbase, because as you said today, that weakness in Roku, you took the opportunity to actually double down, pick up more shares. Coinbase, you sold some of your stake, a very small amount. Um, but what made you? sort of turn on Coinbase? Was it the SEC investigation? Why have you held so strong to this point? Well, we, we are very bullish on crypto assets uh, generally, uh, especially Bitcoin and Ether in here, but uh, crypto assets, uh, including NFTs, NFTs over time. Uh, in the insider trading um, accusation, and this was not accusation, it actually was true, DOJ and SEC mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically um, uh, 
took advantage of that situation, the SEC in particular, to say, uh, we think that uh, at least nine of these securities, uh, nine of these crypto assets are securities. And so what that did was um, move up our thesis risk on the stock. Thesis risk has to do with, in this case, what is going to happen with regulation? What's a security? What's not a security? And um, and what will happen if Coinbase is yeah. forced to register well, with the SEC? These are really important questions. So why less Absolutely. than 1%? Why sell just less so, than 1%? Right. So we, uh, again, we... we took some down. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at we do what uh, what we do in some absolute sense. But on the same day, Shopify was down 15 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just with that piece of news and our confidence that Shopify is enabling social commerce, um, we decided to shift a little from Coinbase into Shopify. The, the, the fears around regulation have been getting into Coinbase's stock, mm-hmm. to be sure. Uh, but here we had Shopify down 15, Coinbase down 15, a uh, little more uncertainty, at least uh, the nine securities, uh, uh, crypto assets are securities. And so we said, OK, let's just make this move. We want to buy more Shopify. How do we fund it? OK, so how big is that risk then for Coinbase? And I guess the central question here is, are tokens securities? I think you probably stand in that they are not, right? Because if they are, then Coinbase's business has a major issue. Well, um, and they'll evolve their strategy to register with the SEC ultimately. I think what they're doing is trying to, um, in a way, negotiate in public with the SEC. I don't think it's working very well because it does seem like uh, Gary Gensler is bound and determined to deem every token or crypto asset a security. The CFTC, however, is um, is calling that into question. So there's a bit of a debate, debate developing here. And just like with the derivatives market in the day, there was the same kind of controversy and the same kind of discussion mm-hmm. between and among various agencies, and they, they worked it out over time. Uh, and we think that will be the case uh, with Coinbase as well. We do think it's one of the most important platforms out there. Right. And uh, we think it will maintain its advantages uh, as we go through these right. regulatory uncertainties. If it can maintain its advantage, we'll see how this all rolls out. Um, lastly, Kathy, because we have you, I want to ask you, um, you are a Twitter user. You're not invested in the company, but I think you have over a million followers. Um, what do you think of what's going on right now? And do you think that Elon Musk would be a good person to run this company? Well, I, I, do, I do agree with Elon Musk that this is a global public town square. We need this and we need an an uncensored or a much less censored version of it. Uh, And I don't think he will be running it. I think he will surround himself with the right people if he goes ahead and, let's say, negotiates the price down. Um, So I I think uh, it it will be good news uh, if uh, if he's running it. I think the the new CEO... Even if he doesn't want it, even if he's fighting it, it's good news if he ultimately has to take it? Well, if he has to take it, I think he'll do something very interesting with it. Mm. Uh, and I'm very interested to learn uh, what is he uh, fearing in terms of bots? How yeah. much of 
how much of the activity is bot related. I can tell you just from what happens with my own account, I'll put a tweet out and yeah. you know, within seconds there are a hundred retweets. Okay, that's those aren't people, those are bots. Uh, so it, it would be very interesting to surface mm -hmm. that and and clean that up as well. It'll make it a more robust platform. I can tell you, it has done wonders for our business, yeah. and uh, and it has done wonders for Elon. He's never had uh, uh, to spend one dollar on advertising. In fact, <laughs> that's right. all publicity, good publicity, and he and he I certainly knows how to use that. Yes. Uh, finally, while we still have time, I do just want to ask you one more thing. Um, you focus on disruptive technologies, the new leadership, as you call it. Meta is making this big shift to what it calls the next disruptive technology, the metaverse. I know that your fund holds shares of uh, Roblox. Why not Meta? Or are you looking at it? So, again, we are we are uh, very you said um, earlier and I agreed with it. A lot of companies were the right companies for the last decade or so, but they're not the right companies for the next decade. I think the jury's out with uh, with Meta. Uh, I think TikTok is ha has been a huge threat to it and is hitting it hard. Uh, and uh, that's their base business. That's their base business. This will be transformational if they're able to move in to the metaverse, however one defines that. And I think mm -hmm. it's going to evolve how we define it over time. So I'm not so sure they're going to make an elegant transition to it. Uh, and that's why we don't own it. Uh, we want to be in more of the pure plays, focusing on how mm -hmm. the world's going to work, not those companies that have enjoyed uh, you know, a, a, a very nice run and are large parts of major indexes because of what has happened historically. We are much more interested in the future winners, not the past right, winners. Right, but the earnings season we just came out of, Kathy, tells us that the past winners, the biggest companies, continue to win almost at the expense of the other ones. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Uh, if you're talking about Amazon, just looking at Microsoft, numbers, Alphabet, Apple, they were so much better off than the other names that are being hurt so much more by this economic slowdown. Right. And so for, for some advertisers, tried and true is where they're going to be and stay during a recession. I get that. Scatter market is, is where Roku has been primarily they're gonna get hurt with an advertising downturn. We've got a five-year investment time horizon, mm. and we think this shift to connect to TV, uh, which Roku is leading as a platform, is going to be powerful and surprisingly mm -hmm. good. Uh, and we think the growth rates, uh, we have a Roku model out there, it's on GitHub for any of, uh, yeah. any of your viewers to see, and accompanied by mm -hmm. uh, a blog and a video, which we try and explain because we think a lot of the, the new new stocks are misunderstood and they're misunderstood because they're not in benchmarks. So many traditional analysts don't choose to follow them or feel like they have to follow them. So we're yeah. trying to well, do a little bit of a service here and provide <laughs> the model. And we ask anyone to go out and test it, scenario test our, our analysis. And true to your word, you're spending your Friday evening with us. So Kathy, we thank you. We covered a lot of ground from the recession to Fed policy to individual names to big tech. Thank you so much. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, a tough week for semiconductor stocks as names from Intel to Qualcomm cut their guidance on weak demand. Could new legislation on the Hill be what sends things higher? 
the CEO of Global Foundries, one of the biggest names behind domestic manufacturing. He joins us next to discuss. Plus, Dan Niles is still with us. We'll get his take on some of Kathy's outlook later on. We're back in three. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome back to this Friday CNBC special, The Tech Trade. Here's a quick look at how we finished up the day on Wall Street. Stocks rallying for a third day to cap off another winning week. The Dow climbing 315, the S&P 500 advancing 1.4 percent, the Nasdaq closing up nearly 2 percent, the major averages posting their best month in years since 2020. Turning to the chip space now, we talked a lot about this. A big week for the sector after disappointing results from industry heavyweights, Qualcomm, Intel. But with the CHIPS Act now on its way to the White House for President Biden to sign, there is some hope ahead. Is there hope ahead for these beaten down names? Christina Partsnevelos joins us with that. Christina. For companies like Intel, the CHIPS Act won't be a quick fix because problems are so deep-rooted. Intel's massive earnings miss had to do with weakness in PC sales that could take quarters to unfold, high customer inventory levels, China's extended COVID lockdown, and lastly, failed execution by management on data center sales and Intel's new CPU launch. Which is why a Rosenblatt analyst wrote, quote, no amount of PC recovery, CHIPS Act legislation, or guidance for an aggressive Q4 snapback will solve this in our opinion. Weaker demand plaguing other chip firms as well. Qualcomm's fourth quarter forecast fell short of expectations because of weaker handset demand. Shares are down over 20% year to date but outperforming the S&P. Chip firms are transitioning away from PC and handset sales and towards more data-centric segments like autonomous driving and artificial intelligence. That's why NXP Semi, the second biggest supplier of chips to the auto industry, was able to give a strong forecast for the current quarter, pushing shares higher this week. The CHIPS Act would no doubt encourage firms like Micron and Texas Instruments to build manufacturing hubs on U.S. soil. But the $52 billion will be spread out over five years, limiting the impact on chip makers in the United States. Dee, back to you. 
Well, our next guest says the CHIPS Act will protect U.S. economic supply chain and national security. Here to discuss one of the biggest, if not the biggest, domestic names in semiconductor manufacturing, Global Foundries' Thomas Caulfield joins us now. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I want to get right into it because China has already responded to the passing of the act here in the U.S. The Commerce Ministry there said that it will distort the global semiconductor supply chain, disrupt international trade. Um, how does this shift the balance? Does this potentially add more fuel to Beijing's drive to catch up and better compete on those high-end chips? Well, I think the, the bigger point—first of all, thank you for having me tonight. I think the bigger point here is the recognition over the last year how fundamental semiconductors are to the world economy, to national security, supply chain security, sovereign security. And uh, what you're seeing now is the recognition broad-based that Countries need not only to have design in semiconductor manufacturing, uh, semiconductors, but they need to have the manufacturing muscle as well. But is it, is it enough, Tom, just to follow up on that? I mean, with the statement out of China, that was sort of my question. Um, they've been spending a ton more money to catch up, more than we are. Yeah, well, uh, the way I view it is very simple. First, the $52 billion uh, is a it's multiplicable effect. It's only going to cover 30% of the capital deployment. The rest comes from companies like GF and our customers. So when you think of 52, you have to think it's like $150 billion of, of catalyst that's going to be spent and deployed. Uh, there's always going to be saber rattling and, uh, and, and one-upsmanship. The fact of the matter is the U.S. has leadership in technology. We need to take that technology and build more of it onshore. And uh, you know, GF's a great example of that, where we, we produce you know, a third of our revenues from uh, the United States. Right, Tom, I have Dan Niles here with me, who you know, he's got a question for you. Hey, Tom. Um, hey, Dan. One thing, one thing, if you could address, obviously TSMC is your biggest competitor. They had great quarter, great outlook. And in addition to that, though, you had Intel, obviously, which had a massive inventory correction that they had to go through. Where do you see the industry right now from your perspective? Yeah, I, I know you. I know your view, Dan. <laughs> Look, <laughs> we play in such broad-based end markets. Uh, to say there's general softness everywhere would not be uh, you know, would not be true. You know, where we see there's pockets, uh, we, we we have the ability to respond to that. Uh, you know, we said this at our last earnings call. We started this year with probably 20 to 25 percent more demand than we had the capability to deliver against, and you know, we're 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 still. Um, you know, oversubscribed as uh, as we as we look into uh, the the future here and the balance of this year into next year. Do you think you could also get a lot more demand from areas like Asia? Obviously, Intel picked up MediaTek recently, which they've never had before. Obviously, a big Taiwanese customer of TSMC. Do you see that as a possibility? As people need to diversify from Asia to here? Yeah, I don't think that's the beginning of that. We've uh, almost every every company you spoke about in the intro, or, or Deirdre spoke in the intro, you just brought up, they're all customers of, of Global Foundries already. Uh, that's the, not only the broad market, market segments we play in, the broad base of customers, we have over 200 customers. And so I think what you're really seeing, Dan, is for the better part of two decades, maybe three, supply chain management was about efficiency and cost. Uh, and in a perfect world, maybe that works. But what you're seeing now is a lot of the single points of failure coming home to roost. You know, the very nature of GF and our global footprint, we operate in Singapore, we operate in the United States and the European Union, we have built-in supply chain flexibility. Our supply chain that supports our facilities there, as well as how we give our, mm -hmm. our customers supply chain right. mitigation. One part number 
for a customer, we could build in, say, Dresden, Germany and, and Singapore. So I think what you're seeing more is not you know, Asia coming to the U.S. You're seeing customers demanding better balance in their supply chain. And that plays to GF straight. And Tom, finally, um, on the same day that the CHIPS Act is passed, uh, that's billions of dollars in funding and tax credits, Intel actually pulled back on its investment plans. I know you can't comment on that, but I just wonder what kind of message does that send to lawmakers, especially those that said maybe this industry that's already profitable shouldn't get a handout? Well, first, let's, I'll work backwards. Uh, this wasn't about rich companies, poor companies. This, this co-investment was about creating and leveling the competitive landscape for doing manufacturing in the U.S. Uh, you know, other countries realize the, the vital importance of semiconductor, and they've been making these types of co-investments. And that's one of the reasons semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. went from 37% in the 90s to 12% today, even though 50% of the demand comes from U.S. headquartered companies. And so I think with the, the message out there is, not one company is going to save the U.S. manufacturing. It's mm. broad-based. Companies like GF, there's other companies, including Intel. TSMC's coming into to Arizona to do their part. We also need to spend money on the upstream and downstream packaging technology, as well as the raw materials that go into semiconductor manufacturing. Yeah. So there'll be plenty of use cases. The money needs to deploy needs to be deployed in a very thoughtful way to create a, mm. you know, a rigorous supply chain end-to-end -end in this country. Well, great insights, uh, Thomas. We thank you for being with us on the Summer Friday. Thomas Caulfield, Global Foundry CEO. Thank you so much. And up next, we're going to tackle the cloud, a read on Google, Microsoft, and Amazon's slowing growth and what it means for the industry with one of the biggest private names, $38 billion Databricks. After the break, our CNBC special returns in just a moment. Amazon, Google, and Microsoft all reporting slowing growth for their cloud segments this quarter, leaving many to wonder how much room is left to run in this already saturated market. Big secular opportunity, though, as well. So how do you position your portfolio? Joining us now, Ali Godsey, CEO of Databricks, a $38 billion software company that stores and analyzes consumer data across different cloud vendors, along with Mac McAlwain of Madrona Capital, one of the earliest investors in Amazon uh, and Snowflake. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for spending your Friday with us, as I'm telling everyone. Matt, let's start with you. What we learned over the last week, essentially, is that the hyperscalers are in pretty good shape. It's slowing, yes, but perhaps more recession resistant than some had feared. What about the rest of cloud and enterprise spending? Who, where's vulnerable? Well, I think the cloud players and particularly AWS are on a great run here. You know, AWS grew $20 billion in the last 12 months. That's almost the entire size of Google's cloud business. So they're in very strong position. I think there's also a layer that, that Ali and others are in like Snowflake in our portfolio that are players that are at this layer of data abstraction. They, I think of them as the dataware companies. And that is a whole group that there's tremendous opportunity, not just for making data to be easier accessible, but turning it into intelligent applications by leveraging the power of machine learning. Hi, Ali. Um, one question for you. As the economy slows down, how do you see your business in the sense of do you get more people coming and trying to take advantage of all the data so they can squeeze out as much revenue as possible? Or do you see things slowing down? Because obviously we've seen a lot of the big pandemic beneficiaries 
the growth slowing over the course of the last year, so they don't need as much capacity from you. Yeah, when I talk to CIOs, they say that they have cost pressures internally. They're being asked to do more with less. Their budgets are shrinking. So the use cases have shifted. So they're using us to reduce their costs. So they use machine learning, they use AI. A lot of the projects are around optimizations. And then the approach that we have is that we can actually unify a lot of the tech platforms that they already have so that they can just use what we call the data lake house, which is just one data platform, instead of having to buy three, right. four different pieces of data infrastructure, a data warehouse, a data lake, and so on. And that reduces their card cost further. And then of course, multi-cloud. They wanna know, can I optimize my spend across the different clouds? Which cloud is cheapest? And there again, AI and machine learning and data helps you. And Ali, I just want to follow on that. Uh, we've been talking this year a lot about, I believe you have a consumption-based um, business model. Is that right? Yep, so does absolutely. Snowflake. And there's maybe been some cracks that are showing what happens to this model in a downturn. How are you thinking of it? And then I want to get Matt's opinion after. No, I think it's actually great. It keeps us honest, right? So our revenue is aligned, aligned with the customer value, which makes us really always focus on what's best for them. And yeah, that's reflected in our revenue. So there's no way to hide. And I think that just creates better companies because then we'll have to keep focusing on how do we bring value to them. So mm -hmm. I think it's just, I think we're actually going to see this model more and more in other companies in the future. Matt, what's your take as a, maybe a more neutral party? Well, I agree with this. And actually, under the covers, that's what the cloud players uh, are doing as well. AWS had 65% growth in their long-term contra contracts this past quarter. And they have a total now of average of four-year contracts with these big enterprise customers. So you have all this booked business that now needs to be consumed. Now, I think mm -hmm. the challenge for, and, and Azure's in a, in a very similar place with what they call their enterprise license agreements of different forms on, under Azure. So the key now is how do you consume those? You're never going to consume, consume those with just the services of the first party cloud companies. So you need services like a Databricks, you need services like, um, you know, the cloud collaboration platforms like a SmartSuite and many mm -hmm. others to consume the services that live on top of the infrastructure. And that's the key to all these enterprises yeah. embracing opportunities. Yeah, we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, guys, thank you so much for being with us. Ali Godsey and Matt McIlwain. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the busiest week of earnings may be over, but don't think it stops here. We're going to have a breakdown of the key names that you should be watching ahead of many more results next week. CNBC's The Tech Trade continues right after this. Welcome back to CNBC, The Tech Trade. Um, another busy week ahead, lots to get through. You like profits, so Love next profits. week doesn't look too good to you. Any mm. names, though, that you're either buying or avoiding? I mean, next week you've got all the companies that are losing money. And the problem is, if you have an issue, they're gonna behave a lot more like Roku and Snapchat that don't make money versus an Amazon where numbers for profits came down or Google where numbers came down. Right where you're like, oh, they'll survive. It doesn't matter if there's a two-year recession. And let's be specific. You're talking Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Airbnb included in that camp? Yeah, I mean, these are some of they're the... they're kind of profitable. Yeah, I mean, but the problem is when you're kind of, you have an issue on the top line, it can really pummel you. And, and by the way, these were some of the names that we stupidly bought earlier <laughs> against some of our shorts to try to hedge them. We're making money this year. Right. But... The way we've made money is avoiding names like those, which we stuck our toes right. into and got chopped off. <laughs> well, something for investors to keep in mind. And coming up, we're just five minutes away from the start of the news. Uh, Tyler Matheson in for Shepard Smith tonight and on the ground in Kentucky as the death toll mounts from historic flooding. We'll be right back.
As inflation and interest rates were going up, we were facing incredible headwinds. Uh, that started in February of 21. And um, it looks like, at least so far, uh, that we bottomed on an intraday basis based on our flagship strategy um, uh, on May 12th. And uh, we actually bottomed before the NASDAQ and the S&P did. The S&P broke down to new lows after that. Uh, so that was uh, an early signal that we might be turning the corner. Uh, Dan, you were here. You listened to that interview. Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of a highlight because she essentially said, we already hit a bottom. I, I don't think you agree with that. I completely do not agree. Because if you look at what the Fed has to do, they have to deal with inflation. The U.S. economy is two-thirds, actually three-quarters services-based. You have almost two, two times as many job openings as you have people unemployed. That's going to feed into inflation in the economy for that reason. Mm -hmm. And the second piece is 30 to 40 percent of inflation is from rents. Home prices are up 20 percent year over year. That feeds into inflation with a year and a half lag. That's going to keep inflation higher than what people think. And the final thing is China's going to open up again before their National Party Congress. We actually bought some copper, uranium, so you think lithium recently. So prices will go back up. Yeah, because they're going to start stimulating again. Well, okay, let me, let me kind of play the other side here. I think what Kathy was getting, and we talked about this earlier as well, market is a leading indicator, and it's kind no, of it pricing isn't. in. Okay, explain, but it is well, pricing yeah. in a softer, more dovish Fed policy. And, and that's the key, Deirdre, because the market's pricing in the Fed cutting rates starting at the first quarter of next year. The Fed is so far behind that they've had to play catch-up that's going to affect things with the lag, just like all that stimulus starting with COVID is why you have inflation a couple of years later. So I think the Fed's going to keep raising rates through next year. They've said 4% is the end point for next year. I think they're going to go through that because they How saw them. do they go? To 4%, okay. I think. But because no Yeah, because they saw the 1970s. The, the Fed screwed up three separate times where inflation started to drop. They backed off, started cutting. Then it took off again, did it again backed off cutting, and then it took off, and then Volcker finally killed it in 81. You had three nasty downturns, three recessions. Right. The Fed has said they've learned from it. You know, it was nice to have you at the beginning of the show and then, Kathy, because I think it represents really two different sides of the market right now and two different ways of thinking. Is there any common ground that you heard? Well, yeah, the common ground is when this hits bottom, tech is what revolutionizes mm -hmm. industries. That's what you want to be in. But you don't want to be suffering through a 78% drawdown, which is what NASDAQ did over two and a half years, and then hope you picked Amazon and not Akamai or something else that has never recovered. Dan, that was the perfect ending uh, for the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. We hope you'll come back and grab a drink on the summer Friday. That does it for us on the CNBC special, The Tech Trade. Thanks for being with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.